Welcome to this session of the Listener's Commentary on the Gospel of Luke. My name is John Whitaker. I'm glad that you are studying the Gospel of Luke along with me. My goal here on the Listener's Commentary is to provide uh, down-to-earth Bible teaching so that you can really understand what these books are about in their original context and in everyday language to help you be able to follow Jesus in your everyday life. That's what we're all about. And Walking through the Gospel of Luke is such a great opportunity to do that, to see who Jesus is, to listen and learn from him as his disciple. And so Luke is really a powerful opportunity to to learn and to live as a disciple of Jesus. And in this session, we're going to be in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 39. And here in this section, we have the call of another one of Jesus' disciples. This is where we meet Levi, the tax collector. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, the same story that's told here is told there, and there he is named Matthew. And so we meet Levi Matthew, or Matthew Levi, who will become one of the 12 apostles. And he's a tax collector. And so we need to remember that tax collectors were despised because they worked for the Romans, the oppressors, right? The foreign occupying army. And the tax collectors taxed their fellow countrymen on behalf of the Romans, and they made their money by charging a surcharge on top of the tax. And that wasn't regulated, really. And so oftentimes it was marked by greed and theft and all of that. And so tax collectors were viewed as traitors and lowlifes who were getting rich off of the foreign occupiers. And so here, a tax collector is called by Jesus, who eventually becomes one of Jesus' main disciples. Let's look at what happens. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. And after that, so after the, uh, the snapshot that we looked at at the end of the last episode, after that, Jesus went out and he looked at a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax office and he said to him, follow me. In Matthew's Gospels, we noted he's called Matthew. Here, Levi. Levi is likely his second name. Uh, so Matthew, Levi, or some such thing. And the tax office is his tax booth, sort of like a toll booth where people moving goods and products had to pay a fee or tax on those goods. And it seems like uh, his booth is in the city of Capernaum, where Jesus' uh, home base for his ministry is, which makes sense since it was right up against three different political regions. It was on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, there there was a, a major international road that came through there and then moved over to the coast and down the coast. So there was a lot of uh, trade and traffic that came through the area. And so it was an important place to, to make sure we taxed goods and um, all of that. And so uh, Levi, Matthew here, Levi, Matthew has his tax booth there. Jesus sees him and calls him to follow him. And Jesus had been doing ministry in and about Capernaum town in this area for a long time. And from his post, Levi had bare minimum heard rumors, likely had heard and seen Jesus in action. And we don't know what kind of interaction he had had with Jesus prior to this moment, but Jesus believes Levi will make a good disciple, so he calls him to follow him. That's the call to become my disciple. How did Levi respond? Well, notice verse 28, and he left everything behind and he got up and he began following him. 
He made a complete break with his previous life, and he started following Jesus as his disciple. This is fascinating because he's totally the wrong kind of person that someone would think would make a good disciple, right? Like he is looked down upon, he's despised, he's in league with those despised Romans, he's you know, getting rich off those guys. He's not doesn't isn't viewed as a you know, a good, loyal Jew who just missed his opportunity to be the disciple of some rabbi. He's all the kind, wrong kind of person. But from Jesus' vantage point, he thinks he would make a good disciple. And Jesus calls him, and Levi responds by dropping everything, locking up the tax booth, and going and following Jesus. Well, G, uh, Levi, because of this great opportunity, he has been given to be a disciple of uh, this rabbi Jesus. Levi decides to throw a big party for Jesus. So verse 29, and Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And so Levi throws a, a reception, a party to honor Jesus because Jesus has been gracious to him. And Jesus goes to this party, and there was a large crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at table with him. Uh, so when just a technical note, when it says reclining at table, that's the way formal banquets would. You would have a table, a low-lying table with uh, low couches and a U-shape around that table, and you would lie with one elbow on the table, your feet out back behind you, you know, away from the table, and you would eat at the table. So this is a formal banquet. And notice who's there. Um, not just Levi, but other tax collectors, other people from this same kind of underbelly of society are there at this banquet. Um, and so apparently Levi leaving everything doesn't include not having a party with his former business associates, whom he's invited to this party so they can meet Jesus as well. And so they're all gathered together at this banquet. And from the Pharisees' perspective, this isn't kosher. So the Pharisees, in verse 30, and their scribes began grumbling to Jesus' disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and the sinners? Notice that the Pharisees and the scribes grumble to Jesus' disciples. They don't go directly to Jesus. They grumble and complain to his disciples, which is a classic move aimed at really uh, stirring up division in the ranks. Like, well, yeah, why don't we? Like, that's their hope. Their hope is to divide the ranks and maybe get Jesus' disciples to look at Jesus and think, there's a problem here with your rabbi. Notice what he's doing. He's eating and drinking with the tax collectors and the sinners. And eating with, uh, I mean, like, that's a big deal. And it would be hard for us to overstate the significance of meals like this, particularly formal banquets, where you're eating together with other people in Jesus' culture. It wasn't just a matter of consuming food, but eating with somebody was a statement of social solidarity. Like ate with like. The, uh, you know, the people from the same social status ate with people from the same social status. That's just the way it worked. Not only that, but the Pharisees, part of their desire in an effort to be pure and holy and to honor God, part of that uh, showed up in seeking to maintain in their private lives the same level of ritual purity that was required of the priests in the temple. They, they wanted to treat their home like a little temple. And so let's be just as pure, ritually pure in our homes as the priests have to be in the temple. Well, so eating with people like this like, how dare Jesus? That, that, like, going into these kind of people's homes, that doesn't make any sense. 
So Jesus certainly must view them uh, as okay, which as the, his equals, which either means he's as vile and unclean as they are, as he doesn't understand social propriety about these things. So this is a big deal. And so they come and they complain to Jesus' disciples about this. And Jesus somehow either overheard it or the disciples mentioned it to him, but word gets back to Jesus. And so in verse 31, Jesus responds. Verse 31, Jesus answered and said to them, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. And so Jesus somehow gets word of this. He responds and he's going to address it. And he says, I, I, I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. Uh, and in Luke's gospel, it appears that the, the term righteous often refers to those who are righteous in themselves and don't see themselves as in need of God's grace. A good example of that is Luke 18, 9, where Jesus tells a parable, and Luke says he told the parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and thus viewed others with contempt. And that seems to be fairly uh, consistent in Luke's gospel. So when Jesus says, I haven't come to call those who are righteous, what he means is people who are self-righteous people who think of themselves as righteous in themselves and look down on others. They don't believe they need grace. And the sinners, they know they need grace. And so Jesus says, I'm like a doctor, and doctors help sick people. Uh, they don't help people who, though they might be sick, don't know they're sick and don't want any help. I've come to call sinners to repentance. And so Jesus gladly socializes with sinners, but here when he states the ultimate goal of that, the goal is to socialize with them, but also to, to lead them to repentance, to lead them back into the community of God's people, to lead them back into a right relationship with God. And so Jesus leads with grace, and he leads with welcome. He's glad to be with them. He, he'll gladly go to a banquet with them. So he leads with grace, but from that, he calls them to live a new kind of life, to return to God and live God's ways. So Jesus explains to the Pharisees his goal and the reason he is willing to engage in these kind of banquets. The Pharisees then respond with a statement that implies a question. This is, this is normal, right? Like this kind of interaction is normal. Jesus is acting as a rabbi and so he has an understanding of the law. And so the Pharisees want to interact with him. To, to, to debate and to try to say, what's the proper understanding of the law? And should you be acting the way you're acting? And so in verse 33, they respond with a statement that implies a question. This is what the Pharisees say in verse 33. They said to him, the disciples of John, that is John the Baptist, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. So they're basically saying, your disciples don't seem very pious. They don't seem very spiritual, seems to be the idea. Uh, pious Jews fasted twice a week, on Monday and on Thursday. Interestingly, the Old Testament law actually only required fasting on the Day of Atonement, one day a year. But faithful Jews practiced it more often than that. We know that Jesus fasted, right? We've seen that in Luke chapter 4. He fasted for 40 days. You, you don't get to being able to fast for 40 days without having practiced fasting and working up to it, right? And so we know that Jesus practiced fasting. The real problem is that Jesus is uh, socializing with and, and banqueting with, partying with 
the wrong kind of people. And so the implied question really is like, so what's going on here? You, you guys are eating and drinking and partying with the wrong kind of people. Here's how Jesus responds. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the groom fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the days will come when the groom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So Jesus answers their implied question with an analogy of a wedding feast. And weddings were celebrated with a seven-day feast in their day and age. And Would it be appropriate um, for the guests at the wedding to, to, to not feast, but instead to fast and not enjoy the celebration? Certainly not. It's a feast. It's a celebration. This is a wedding. This is a big deal. We're celebrating. Well, likewise, Jesus is inviting people into the day of salvation. It's a time of feasting, not fasting. When he is taken away, when he's gone away, well, fasting will be appropriate. But right now, this is a time of feasting because the new day of salvation is dawning. God, uh, Jesus is bringing God's kingdom to bear in the world in a brand new way. And so it's, it's not appropriate to fast when we're at a feast, is it? That's the point of the illustration. Well, then Jesus uses two illustrations to further explain this. The first is uh, from the world of seamstry and patching clothes. The second is about wine. So verse 36, he said he also was telling them this parable. This is trying to explain and help him think through this issue of feasting and what's going on with Jesus. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment, Jesus says, and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the patch from, from the new garment won't match the old. Like, it doesn't make sense to put new on old because actually you'll ruin both. You'll ruin the new garment by ripping off a cloth from that, piece of cloth from there, and the patch isn't going to match the old. In fact, it's going to shrink and it's going to tear, as uh, it says in Matthew's version of this. That's the first illustration. The second illustration is about wine, verse 37. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. No new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. A wineskin was a leather bag into which you would put wine, hold wine, right? And it would get stretched and worn if you uh, out as the, the as you put the wine into it, the gases from the wine, right, would expand and create pressure. So it would stretch that bag out. So now you've got this old wineskin. That's the picture. And if you take this old, already thin, stretched out, used wineskin, you put fresh wine in it, it's going to ferment in that, that skin and it's going to build up gases, which is going to try to cause it to stretch, stretch some more. And what's going to happen? Well, it's, it's going to rupture the bag, right? The, the pressure will be too much. The bag will be too weak. The skin will, will break apart and the wine will be poured out and the skin will be ruined and it won't be good for anything, right? That's the picture that he's, he's dealing with in the illustration. Now, what's the point of these two illustrations? Well, the point is that Jesus is bringing in, in a new reality and it just can't be, you know, stuffed into the forms of the old reality. The old and the new just don't match. They don't fit. There's got to be new forms to go with the new reality that Jesus is bringing into the world. Well, that forces us then to think about, well, what is the, the new and the old here then in Jesus's uh, imagery? And it 
you can't say, well, it's Christianity and Judaism per se. I don't think that's quite accurate enough, quite nuanced enough, because the apostles were Jews. And in fact, when you read the book of Acts, they continue to live as Jews in a number of ways. They even emphasize that the way of Jesus was the fulfillment of the old, like it it was the culmination of, and everything the old was supposed to achieve is brought to culmination point in Jesus. In fact, they went on to teach that in Jesus, everybody is welcome, that the law is no longer the like the defining mark of God's people. Romans 10.4, for example, says that we've arrived at the end of the law in Jesus. That is the culmination point of it, so that God's people are now formed and found in Christ, not the law. And that's really, I think, the new that we're talking about here is that we're shifting from seeing uh, um, the, the boundary mark or the defining mark as Torah and temple and all of that to seeing it as Messiah. And so that Jesus uh, in Jesus, the law achieves its purpose and its goal of bringing all people into God's kingdom. Well, that just doesn't mix well with old ways of thinking, old exclusive traditions, old patterns of uh, religion, old barriers that kept people out. And that's the context here in Luke chapter 5. The Pharisees think these, these tax collectors and sinners, they need to be kept out. They need to be banished. And Jesus is saying in him, God's kingdom is throwing the door open wide to any and everybody who would come into him. And in him, all are welcome and all can experience the grace and the kingdom of God. So in Jesus, the old is passing away and the new has come. He's ushering in a new era and throwing open the doors wide of God's kingdom to anybody and everybody. And that's why it's a time of feasting, not fasting. That's why it's a time for celebration, not mourning. And that's why you can't just take this new reality that's bursting on the scene in Jesus and try to stuff it into old ways of thinking and old ways of acting and old patterns of religion. It just doesn't match. Um, but the problem is, oftentimes people who like the old really don't want the new. And so verse 39 says, uh, Jesus's words are, and no one after drinking old wine wants new, for he says, ah, the old is fine, right? The problem is, if you like the old, you'll resist the new. And that's the implication for the Pharisees. Jesus is saying, I'm bringing a new reality, and we're celebrating that right now. And if you are so attached to the old, you're probably going to reject the new. And there's always the danger of loving old forms of things and being content with old ways of thinking and old patterns of acting and your old uh, ideas instead of the new realities. And Jesus is now the one who's the, the centerpiece and the place where heaven and earth intersect, where God and people meet. He's the place where God's kingdom is bursting into the world. It requires new ways of thinking and new approaches. He's throwing the door open wide to any and everybody. And so what we see in this snapshot is that Jesus welcomes, quote unquote, lowlifes and despicables. Jesus welcomes the kind of people that everyone else would want to keep away. And that's a key part of the new reality of God's kingdom. Now at work in the world that began in Jesus' day and continues in and through Jesus' people, uh, that Jesus welcomes the undesirables in your world. So who are they? Who are the people that, that um, 
that are undesirable, who are the low lives, who are despicable. We have to remember that Jesus' kingdom is open to them. Indeed, Levi, in the story where the story began, is a tax collector, and he will be one of the 12 apostles. So how can you and how can I show the welcome of Jesus, the very welcome of Jesus that eats with them? How can we model and show and demonstrate the welcome of Jesus to the people that oftentimes are viewed as, well, they're not good religious folk. They would never come into this. Who knows? Jesus actually loves to have banquets with lowlifes and despicables.